guys, Matt here with the Low Key Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, iTunes, and Facebook. Now, here's another Season 2 episode with Ghost Fish Brewing. It's nice. It's easy. It's low-key. Let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Low Key. I am here with Brian with Ghostfish Brewing. How you doing, man? Good. How are you doing, Matthew? Awesome. Seattle's been treating me great. Um, it's great weather, um, six in the 60s and stuff, so it's been pretty nice. Yeah, so it's it's not true that it rains all the time here, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, last time I was here, it was sunny and nice, so every time I've come here, it's been pretty sunny. I've been trying to look for the clouds, but there hasn't been any. Well, now you understand why there's so many people moving to Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> let's, so, let's keep it on the, on the DL, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, so kind of describe what Ghostfish is and um, how you got started into craft beer. Yeah. So Ghostfish Brewing uh, Company is the right now the largest dedicated gluten-free brewery in the United States by volume. Uh, we started about, uh, we opened our doors to the public about five years, five years, sorry, four years ago. Uh, the project itself uh, goes back, uh, the origins of the project go back about seven years when uh, myself and another individual, um, uh, Randy Schrader, uh, were both the co-founders, had this idea to open up uh, a brewery. And um, a lot of people don't, don't realize this, that no ghost fish today, but uh, at, in the very beginning, the, the idea to open up a brewery wasn't necessarily to open up a dedicated gluten-free brewery. It was just two guys that were, as I like to say, pretty bad home brewers. They had an idea to uh, open up a brewery um, with some general background and experiences that we felt you know, could, could make this work with the intention to hire a person to actually brew our beer. Yeah. Uh, but we weren't planning to be a dedicated gluten-free brewery in the beginning. We just were going to be another one of the 7,000 breweries doing, you know, what what they're doing right now across the United States. Um, so the second part of your question in terms of, you know, getting into the craft beer industry, my uh, professional um, experience comes from the aluminum can industry. Okay. So I was working for two of the world's largest can manufacturers, uh, basically uh, selling cans, printed, printed aluminum cans, to a lot of craft breweries across the United States before I uh, started Ghostfish. So that gave me a lot of in, uh, in, insight into the, the industry. Uh, I've also worked with a lot of the large macro breweries, um, which I think most people know who I'm talking about. I uh, don't really need to say their names, but also a lot of the large carbonated soft drink companies like Dr. Pepper and Pepsi and Coca-Cola, along with, you know, about 500 plus craft breweries that we're getting into cans about within the last 10 years. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what made you dive into gluten-free um, beers? Yeah. So it was sort of, uh, it, it, it was an obvious thing that wasn't so obvious when we were, when my, my business partner and I were talking about, uh, 
uh, you know, becoming a dedicated gluten-free brewery, and that is that my wife was diagnosed uh, probably about 10, 10 to 12 years ago now in terms of a celiac disease. And so um, she was a beer drinker, still is a beer drinker, but um, I think she cried for a full week, um, less about the diagnosis, more about the fact that she was going to have to be giving up beer. Yeah. And so um, I had tried all the, the, the gluten-free beers that were on the, in the market along with her. And while they were getting better with time, uh, I still felt, felt like at least seven years ago that the quality was not up to the level of what I expected for craft beer. Mm. And so I had this belief um, that, was, that was really just a belief in the beginning. It was unknown in terms of, but I believed that it was possible to make really great craft gluten-free beer. And so that was really the emphasis in terms of, you know, starting this project and gearing everything towards, you know, being a, a dedicated craft gluten-free brewery. That's really cool. I've actually never tried a gluten-free beer. <laughs> well, um, you know, you, you certainly can, but uh, it's on some levels, depending on what you try, it could be a waste of time. I mean, in fairness to, there's a lot, there are a, a handful and growing number of uh, a really good, dedicated gluten-free breweries across the United States. Um, and these are people that, like ourselves, that have... Uh, you know, decided that they wanted to do something different than yeah. what had been done before. Uh, there are some of the macro breweries that put out, you know, some macro gluten-free beers. Um, however, you know, it, it sort of felt like to me that they were putting out a product simply to take advantage of a group of people that could no longer drink beer made from wheat, barley, and rye yeah. um, to just get out there because they know they didn't have any options. And... I think a lot of people, you know, there, of course, there are a lot of people that, you know, that buy those beers because they either they don't know any better or they've developed a, a taste for them. But there's a lot of people who have been around for this craft, you know, revolution and then got diagnosed and they know what good beer or the type of beer that they want to. And so they're looking for something higher quality, um, you know, with more flavor, full flavor, you know, in terms of the craft brings. And so that's really the level that we play at and stuff. So we're not trying to represent the early adapters of gluten-free beer. We represent something different. Yeah. And I'm happy to say that there's more than just us out there doing some really great things. That's cool. What, what's kind of some of the misconceptions that people um, get from, from gluten-free breweries and kind of something you want to create for people to... To, to see in gluten-free? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I think that, you know, those two words, gluten-free, <laughs> yeah. start to elicit some, some you know, thoughts in people's head that, you know, maybe aren't necessarily the greatest. You know, it, it can, there can be some negative connotations. And in, in fairness, it's understandable because, again, the early versions of gluten-free beer weren't exactly, you know, in my opinion, the, the, the highest quality, the best tasting. Um, and so likely if you, if people have tried that before, they would be unwilling to try something new because of the experience that they had. So there's that challenge in terms of overcoming, you know, preconceived notions that people have. Um, and I, I think generally when you add something like gluten-free and maybe that the free context, just like sugar-free or fat-free or where it feels like something's missing or is taken away, 
people feel like it's an inferior product. And so uh, it's, for me, it's a huge, you know, to, to make that statement with Ghostfish beer and not trying it first is, and that's really what I uh, try very hard for, to, to encourage people to try us before you, you um, make a judgment, whether it's you've tasted a lot of gluten-free products out there and stuff um, or not. Um, if you try our beer and then you know you feel like it's not for you, then then I have nothing else to say. But if you cast stones in terms of without trying it first, you know that's it's a little disheartening for me. Um, so I think you know that there's a there's a another kind of a misconception is that there is a growing number of breweries that are taking a different route um, to to create something that's not gluten free, but it's actually gluten reduced. Okay. And so there's a lot of brands out there and more of the larger even craft regional breweries that have started doing this um, where they add an enzyme to the to the, the beer that's typically made with barley. And so what that enzyme was was originally uh, the purpose of that enzyme was is to take chill haze out, out of the beer. okay S- Somewhere along the way somebody realized that it also, was reducing the the gluten content in the beer. Now, here's where there's a big misconception in terms of is that, without trying to go down a deep rabbit hole, there is no test that exists to determine the level of gluten proteins in fermented beverages, okay? There's a test that's often, the ELISA test, which is often noted and stuff, but that test is not valid for fermented beverages. So the FDA and the TTB require breweries to be below 20 parts per million. They still can't call themselves gluten-free, but they can call themselves gluten-removed or um, gluten-reduced. It's not the same as gluten-free. We start with ingredients, materials that are 100% in most cases, certified gluten-free, meaning that yeah. we don't remove anything. They are naturally gluten-free. People who are making gluten-reduced beer are starting with, with ingredients that contain the gluten protein and adding in an enzyme to remove some, but not all of the gluten proteins. So people who are celiac and many people who are gluten intolerant still cannot or should not drink gluten-reduced beers because whether it's getting them sick or they're having symptoms or reactions, internally studies are showing that it's still causing damage in their lower intestines. Mm. So that's one of the biggest misconceptions or the, you know, that I'd like to clear up in terms of is that what we're doing has a lot of integrity behind it. Yes, these grains cost more and the process itself basically costs us more to, to actually brew our beer. But it's also we're staying in integrity by the fact that we're not people are not getting sick by drinking our beer, and I feel like it makes better beer because we're brewing with grains, getting the full flavor from those grains. We're not removing anything from them. That's cool. So hopefully that makes makes a little bit of sense. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask a little bit about because you're talking about brewing and stuff. Um, how is it different, like from brewing gluten beer? different from the process is there any process that's different than, than that yeah so if I had my brewers here they would they 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 would be shaking their heads for when they hear me say what I'm about to say and that is 
for the most part, the process is exactly the same as brewing beer the traditional way with barley, wheat, and rye, things like that. I like to say what we do here is brewing traditional brewing with non-traditional grains. There are challenges, though, involved with, with creating our beer from these grains. For example, uh, we use millet okay. primarily uh, as in the same way that most breweries use barley. So millet is our barley. The grain bill of the majority of our beers uh, contains uh, about 70% millet. We also use brown rice, and in some beers we use buckwheat. Um, so buckwheat, even though it says the, the word wheat in it, you know, people think, oh, it must have gluten. Actually, buckwheat is, is less related to wheat and more related to, I think, a rutabaga than it is, um, you know, the, the actual wheat plant stuff. But it is a grain, and so it contains no gluten, um, and um, we do use it in some of the beers as well, too. The challenge comes in, there's a couple things that I'll touch upon. Uh, the biggest challenge for brewing is the fact that these grains are very tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, the best way I could describe in terms of if, if you or your listeners have ever cooked with quinoa and the size of the individual's quinoa, they're actually a seed, but those you know individual grain kernels and stuff, millet's slightly larger than that. Okay. So we're still running those grains through our mill Mm. and cracking or crushing those grains, but too much and you've got flour and not enough and you're not opening them enough so we can remove the, the sugars and starches. So the other thing is that there's a reason why brewers shifted, you know, a long time ago in terms of brewing with barley, and that's because barley also has a lot of the diastatic powers in terms of the brewer's want. Yeah. So it has, you know, the right, right amount, you know, the desirable amount of sugars, um, its size, you know, is, is easy to work with and things like that. But however, barley and other grains that traditional breweries work with have had hundreds of years of tinkering, as I like to say, in terms of, you know, in a laboratory, um, in a lot of universities across, you know, the world and stuff, you know, have, have developed, you know, basically, you know, these grains. So they're what you what you brew with, um, with barley malt, is made, is grown specifically for brewing. And that's not the same, it's not the same with millet. So the millet that we use in our process was not made for brewing. Mm. It was made for things like bird seed. A lot of people don't realize millet's the number one, uh, one of the, one of the top ingredients in bird seed, you know, sold in the United States. Um, it's, it's also made for breads, uh, you know, cereals, crackers, you know, and things like that. Um, and so it hasn't undergone that same level of construction, you know, in terms of that, uh, that barley has. And so that's an exciting, you know, part of our future in terms of to be able to get these grains to the point where we can someday go to a farmer and tell them exactly the type of qualities that we're looking for in a beer yeah. and that they can actually start to grow that, you know, from a seed to, you know, harvesting it. Um, and that's, that's kind of the future of what we're doing with. The second part, as I said, there's two parts I want to touch upon is the cost of these grains. Um, because there are right now today only a few um, craft malt houses that are certified to be able to 
prevent cross-contamination of these grains that we actually buy from, and other breweries doing the similar thing that we're doing, you know, buy from them as well too. The grains themselves are, are very expensive. To give you, uh, your list, you and your listeners kind of a, an idea in terms of the cost difference, um, you know, I don't know exactly what other breweries pay for their barley malt, but it's somewhere around 30 cents a pound. Uh, our least expensive malt is our brown rice malt, and it's also the smaller component in our ingredient list. So we use about, our, most of our beers use about 20 to 30% brown rice. Brown rice malt, um, like a, a standard uh, brown rice malt, is about 80 cents a pound. As I said, we use about, you know, in our, in our ingredient list, about 70% of our grain bill is millet. The least expensive um, millet malt that we purchase is a pale millet malt, and it's around a bu- about a buck twenty a pound. So you can see right there the challenges that we have in terms of is that we're already brewing beer that's significantly more expensive than other breweries, and so our challenge from the beginning was not to price ourselves out of the marketplace, yeah, but to we're admittedly at the higher end of craft beer, um, probably closer to cider pricing. But still, in that sort of range, is acceptable for craft beer drinkers because because we believe we're making a product that appeals to all beer drinkers. It's not just made for only people who are gluten free or celiac. It's for everyone. And so, if we, we knew that if if we were able to accomplish that in terms of the quality of the product, we didn't want to price ourselves out of that you know market. So only the people that you know, like I said, were gluten free or celiac would be the only ones buying the product. Yeah, that's really cool. It's really awesome. So if you're using those like higher quality grains, have you noticed um, like it like having better success with better tasting beers than just like cheap wheat or barley based beers? You know what I'm saying? Like uh, does, does it Yeah, I think I understand what you're saying in terms of, you know, I I don't believe that there's breweries using, you know, I mean, yes, some of the macro breweries, you know, use, use, you know, a combination of things, you know, that, uh, you know, uh, aren't typically found in the average craft beer. Um, however, for us, it's, it's, you know, we don't really have different grades of the grains and malts that we're using. It's, here's what's available. Yeah. <laughs> Take it or leave it. Um, but the fact that we're using grains, you know, we're, you know, I feel like, you know, we're, that we're extracting, you know, full flavor from these grains. Mm-hmm. The other challenge is that, uh, admittedly, these grains don't have the same sugar contents, you know, the fermentables in terms of that, you know, the traditional, you know, grains, you know, would, would, would provide for a brewer. And let's face it, that's really what brewers are, are looking for. They're looking to get the fermentables, the sugar, you know, the starches out of these, you know, grains, um, because that's ultimately what the yeast is, you know, converting to alcohol. Yeah. So I'm not sure if I fully answered your your question or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what What's your favorite thing about working in a brewery, being a part of it? There's a spirit that exists in this craft industry that's unlike anything that I've ever experienced, you know, in my, my professional career before. Um, and, and that spirit is, it's, it's a spirit of collaboration. Mm-hmm. It's a very inclusive uh, group of, of people that, um, and by that I mean, 
even despite the fact that we're a dedicated gluten-free brewery, although we look at ourselves as just you know doing the same thing that everybody else is doing, if we have a problem in our, in our brewery, we need something, we can pick up the phone with any of our friends here in Seattle, in our neighborhood that are brewers, and reach out to them. And nine times out of the ten, they're not only are they able to help us, but they're willing and you know they to to do that. And sort of the industry that I came from, you would never see this level of collaboration exist. Um, for example, I've never I would would never see nor would I ever ever believe Pepsi and Coca Cola collaborating on a project or helping each other out. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's sort of the spirit that exists in this industry. If you need something, just ask because people are willing to help you out. And so I think that, uh, you know, as long as that spirit continues to exist, you know, within the craft industry, uh, the future is very bright. Um, there are some exceptions where people, you know, are, you know, branding and things like that, you know, that uh, they hold very close to the vest for, for various reasons. But it doesn't feel like we're competing against each other. It feels like we're, you know, we're doing this for a greater purpose. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty exciting for me. That is cool. Speaking of greater purposes, um, you, you guys have a, a beer that's really cool that serves a great purpose. It's your Killer Ale. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us, just tell us a little bit about that and yeah, what the, you guys do with that. Sure. No, thanks for asking that. The Killer Ale Project, uh, which is an IPA, um, it came out of um, uh, a trip that I took uh, to the San Juan Islands here in Washington uh, last summer. Um, uh, my daughter and her... Um, her boyfriend uh, wanted to go on a whale watching tour, and so I let them choose, uh, you know, the tour group. Uh, this was sort of a private, uh, you know, individual uh, that ran this this tour group that left out of Friday Harbor, and so um, learned a lot about uh, you know whales and whale watching. And um, for anybody that's uh, kind of following the the, the the orca whales in the Pacific Northwest, you know, they probably already know in terms of particularly. The resident orcas are, uh, that exist in the in the San Juans or the Salish Sea area and stuff are facing extinction. You know things don't change, um, and you know the big biggest issue is that um, they prime their primary food source is salmon, and there's just um, a lack of salmon. You know in the Salish Sea uh, from overfishing and various reasons. You know in terms of that. Uh, that uh, list is long in terms of, you know, I'll spare in terms of going into that. Um, so anyways, the captain of this uh, whale watching tour, who's very passionate about um, saving these whales, um, really kind of gave me an earful in a, in a very positive way while, we, while he had me on this boat. And so I let him know what I did um, in terms of being an owner of a brewery. Um, and um, he certainly filled me in in terms of all his, you know, 17, 18 years of doing what he did. And so when we when I departed the boat, um, I asked him if he would accept beer in lieu of a cash tip. And so I left him some ghost fish, left him a, you know about a case of uh, ghost fish beer. And so a couple days uh, passed, and I was back down here in Seattle. I actually, was on my way into the brewery, and I got a call from uh, um, Captain Hobbs, um, the owner of this tour group, and he really uh, fell in love with our grapefruit IPA. And so he, he uh, asked if uh, we um, would ever consider basically doing a kind of a project beer or a collaboration beer. And so I was interested, and, and um, we started talking about things. And 
Killer Ale IPA is what uh, came out of that project. So we brewed a special beer. Um, it has a lot of, um, uh, you know, Northwest, you know, uh, traditional Northwest kind of flavors, you know, that, that people that, you know, IPA drinkers here in the Northwest are, you know, kind of look for. And, um, and uh, we packaged it, the, the beer in 16-ounce cans as well as some draft. And um, we're giving back basically 10% of the sales proceeds back to the Orca Protection Rescue Organization, which is an organization that Captain Hobbs also started, which, which is, uh, provides education and also hands-on support, uh, basically, you know, doing some actual real tangible things to actually make a difference in saving the, the, the orcas the same sea. So pretty excited about that. The, the first batch uh, came and went very quickly. And so we've actually got the second batch actually fermenting right now. And that's scheduled to be released uh, the about the 17th, uh, 17th of April. So we're pretty excited about that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully one day I'll get to see an orca. That'd be cool. Pretty, pretty majestic, I'm going to yeah. say. Yeah. I've always wanted to see one. Um, so describe more of like your seasonal beers, your your staples. Yeah, so one of the, the one of the hallmarks of Ghost Fish. I mean, I know that people associate us, us with being the dedicated gluten free brewery in Seattle. Um, however, from the very beginning, one of the things that we really were excited about was being very innovative. So in our tap room, uh, we have a, a small half barrel pilot system um, that that uh, kind of complements our 15-barrel brew house uh, here in our production uh, facility. So the half barrel system allows us a lot of flexibility to try new recipes. And we probably have had over 300 different beers that have come off of that pilot system that have been served here in our tap room over the last four years. So the spirit of that sort of plays into our seasonals and limited releases. Um, we have a, a variety of seasonals that we do. We've kind of settled into a groove in terms of, so it's, it's approaching spring, and so our spring seasonal just released uh, last, uh, this past Saturday, which uh, is called Kai Dog Amber Ale. Um, it used to be a red IPA. Um, Kai is my business partner's dog, um, who spent a lot of time here over the last four years. He's a... Um, uh, a, a golden retriever that's very reddish in color. Yeah. So the the red IPA, we switched it to an amber. We got a lot of requests for an amber. So it's a, a really beautiful um, kind of a, a reddish hue to it and stuff, you know, like an amber, um, very smooth, you know, drinking and everything like that. Our summer seasonal is a goza, traditional German style goza. It's actually a hibiscus cranberry goza. Uh, that we put out uh, starting in June. And then we follow that up in the fall with uh, our, our Lunar Harvest. It's a, uh, a, a Belgian style, um, uh, it's a Belgian style pumpkin ale uh, mm. that we put out that's uh, really unique. And then we wind things up with our Watchstander Stout. Um, and that's a, it's an American dry stout style. It's, a, it's also a beer for us that, that took gold at the 2015 Great American Beer Festival. Nice. And um, it was sad to see that we had to take that out of our year, year-round lineup and put it into a seasonal. But uh, we had to make room for a lot of other beers that are, that are growing and stuff. And so, in addition to that, we have a, a ghost pepper saison that comes out during the summertime. So for those people that like a little bit of uh, 
uh, heat to their beer, a little bit of kick and stuff. Um, it's really well balanced with the Saison style. This year we're going to really play off of the farmhouse Saison style, and, 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 and it is brewed with ghost peppers and a few other additional peppers that we because we really want a good you know pepper taste in it. It's not just going for the heat. It's not a novelty beer. It's a it's a very drinkable and approachable beer. And then we always do a fresh hop. I mean, you think about it in terms of true seasonals. In my opinion, the, the very truest seasonal beer that a brewer can make is a fresh hop IPA because hops have an actual harvest season that they're basically harvested. You know, typically in September and into parts of October, and that is their season. So, yes, a lot of brewers do, you know, year-round seasonals and stuff, but in my opinion, the very truest seasonal beer is a fresh hop. And so, for the past couple of years, we've selected a particular hop variety and done a single hop, fresh hop IPA um, around the time of harvest. So, last year we did a Simcoe fresh hop, and, a, and then we did a separate Centennial Fresh Hop, and the year before we did a Citra Fresh Hop. So who knows what we'll do this year, but uh, we're look, well, we always look forward to, to that. So literally the, the hops are harvested uh, usually the morning, uh, a morning, um, and then we drive over to the Yakima Valley here in Washington and pick up what we need, drive them back, and they're basically added to our, to our brew that same day. So you can't get any fresher than that. Kind of, uh, what what made you choose Seattle, and uh, why name it Go, Ghostfish? Yeah, well, um, that's that's an interesting question because there's a lot of great places here in Washington that you know that we could have landed, and we looked at a lot of different places. Um, I personally live south of Seattle, down in Tacoma, so that was on our list of places as well too. Ultimately, we felt that Seattle offered the, the greatest exposure for what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that uh, you know other places, even Tacoma, you know, wouldn't have wouldn't have provided us that, but we just felt like the opportunities that Seattle you know uh, presented, you know, was too good to pass up. We are in an area in Seattle called Soto, um, which uh, is uh, I think was referred to as South of the Dome when when Seattle had a had a dome for their sports teams. Uh, I also like to refer to it as South Downtown, so Soto for short. It's also known as the sort of the the uh, the last remaining manufacturing er- area of Seattle. Mm. Has a lot of manufacturing history, um, you know, through the his- through the history of this of this uh, city. And so we were very interested to create our brewery in this area because of the history, the manufacturing exists, you know, um, and production, you know, kind of history that exists in this area. And to find uh, the space that we're in, which itself has a lot of history, this building that we're sitting in right now was built in 1926. And when this building opened up, it was a steel foundry. So they were making, you know, basically products, you know, out of steel in this, in this, in this foundry. And after the steel foundry closed, there were several different manufacturers that, uh, that operated out of this building as well, too. So it has a lot of history. Um, we're about five and a half blocks south of the stadiums. So where the, uh, the, the Seattle Mariners play and the Seattle Sounders play and the Seattle Seahawks play. So we do get some nice exposure from that. We're not a sports bar, but we're still, you know, in walking distance from that. Um, so Seattle just offered a lot um, to us. 
why we chose the name Ghostfish is, is also an interesting uh, story. Um, if you were to ask this question to any of our bartenders, you might get a different story because they like to kind of spin a, uh, you know, a fun tale with that. There's you know, a lot of opportunity to, to uh, be creative with the story. The real story, though, and I'll give this to you and your listeners in terms of, was that about seven years ago, again, when, we, when myself and my business partner, Randy, were kind of dreaming up this brewery project, and again, we weren't a dedicated gluten-free brewery. We were just two guys that were going to open up a brewery. Um, we were doing all the, what I like to say, the fun things with designing a brewery then. Before you actually have beer, before you actually have anything, it's fun to create beer names, yeah. tap handles, logos, brewery names, and things like that. So we had pages upon pages of names for breweries that some of them were okay, some of them were probably good, but uh, nothing was really resonating. At the time, my wife and I were living um, in an old beach house that was built right at the mouth of the Port of Tacoma, right on the water. So it was built on a bulkhead in the late 40s, and when high tide would, would, would be in, water was about four feet below our, our windowsill. So you could literally look out the front windows of our house and with high tide and look down into the water. Now, the water in the Puget Sound is very clear. There's a reason why divers like to dive out here and stuff because you can see for a long distance very clearly. So I could look down and see fish swimming around and all kinds of sea life and things like that, which is pretty cool. And so one July evening, I had a friend visiting from Denver and we had been out uh, had dinner, had a few few beers at a, at a local establishment in Tacoma, and uh, came back to my place, and I was sitting inside, and my friend uh, had been outside standing on the bulkhead, and he was just taking in the beautiful late July, kind of summer night, clear. I like, to, I like to add that it wasn't a full moon, so there's no reflection off of the moon or anything like that. Yeah. No strange lighting, just water and, you know, and him. And he came in, and he had this real disheveled look on his face, and so I asked him, I said, well, you know, what's up? And he said, I just saw this glowing fish swim right in front of your house. Now, I had lived there for a couple of years, and I had never seen a glowing fish swim, swim in front of my house. So I, I gave him some grief. One could say I gave him some shit, you know. <laughs> and so I went out to stand on the bulkhead to really humor him and still give him grief because I didn't see anything. Yeah. And was out there for about 30 minutes, and just as I was getting ready to go back into my house, this large, glowing object glided from our right to our left, right past both of us. So interesting and sort of scary that the hair on my arms was standing straight up. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he's flipping me off at this time, because he's like, I told you so, and I'm like, what was that? He's like, that's what I'm asking you. <laughs> and so probably the, the worst mistake that I made and that anybody could make is that if you really are don't know something, don't Google it because you can really find a lot of stuff, you know, in terms of that will support what you think you might have saw. And I did. Um, and so I just thought that it was... I had heard a lot of stories when I moved out to the Pacific Northwest, I'm not originally from here, about all the different things that uh, the city of Tacoma had dumped into the Puget Sound over the last, you know, 50 years. And so I just thought, leave it to, leave it to the city of Tacoma to have created this glowing species of fish in the Puget Sound. 
<laughs> now that's not what it was, and this is not a knock on the, on Tacoma. But the next day, I called my business partner, and I must have said to him that my friend and I had saw this glowing ghost fish the night before. And so he had a good laugh. He gave me a lot of grief and hung up the phone. And about an hour later, the phone rang. And it was my business partner, and he simply said, Ghost Fish Brewing Company. That's and awesome. I said, I love it. Yeah. So we built the logo and the brand around what I described, what I had seen in the water. Now, what it was, who knows? <laughs> However, my wife, who has a master's degree in biology, who happened to be out of town during this time, came back and she's like, you knuckleheads. She's like, it's bioluminescence in the water. So all these little little microorganism, it, microorganisms that uh, are called dinoflagellates that emit light when they're basically in danger. So it was probably a harbor seal or a mud shark or something that glided through all these little dinoflagellates that created this bioluminescence that looked like a glowing ghost fish. Wow. So that's really where the name came from. And, you know, today a lot of people that see our name, even though we don't separate the ghost from the fish, they just naturally think, because a lot of people shorten our name to GF, yeah. They, they think that it stands for gluten-free. However, it was sort of serendipitous that the name came before any of that stuff. And again, we don't, we don't separate the two words, but there is, a there is a connection in terms of that. It felt right once we discovered the fact that, you know, that we were going to be gluten-free, that it, it really kind of fit within that as well, too. But That's really cool. Yeah. Kind of uh, talk about where you guys are located and then how people can reach out and see where you're at. Yeah, so uh, one thing that we didn't really talk about is that we're sitting here in our, in our tap room. We have a, a large 100-seat tap room, full kitchen restaurant, open seven days a week, um, open up Monday through, thir through Thursday at 3 o'clock, um, usually open till 9. And then on Friday through Sunday, we open up at noon. Fridays and Saturdays, we're open till. 10 we never really kick anybody out of here you know we start to close down around that time and then Sundays open till 7 uh, the kitchen just like our breweries is 100% uh, dedicated gluten free however the kitchen just like the brewery side is really just focused on making the highest quality food just like the highest quality beer that happens to be gluten free so again we're we cater to basically food lovers and beer lovers alike uh, our, our brewery tap room is located uh, 2942 First Avenue South, right in the heart of Soto. And um, people can go to our website, uh, which is basically just www.ghostfishbrewing.com. Um, we also have all the full complement of social media sites, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You know, they can learn a lot about you know, the breweries well, too. Um, and for people that uh, may be listening to you that uh, are hearing about this for the first time and would really like to try our beer that don't live up here, um, at our website there is an opportunity. There are a couple of retailers that uh, we sell our beer to that are licensed to ship beer to states that allow for online beer sales and, and shipping alcohol. Not every state in the U.S. allows for that, but there's, I believe, about... 30 some states that do and so you might be living in a state that you can actually have ghost fish shipped right to your front door that's cool what's your what's your distribution like in the states yeah 
Uh, great question. The question was distribution in the United States. Um, so we're currently in nine or ten states, uh, depending on if we've started to distribute in Rhode Island yet. Um, uh, that includes Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Alaska, Colorado, Illinois, Massachusetts, Vermont, Connecticut, and possibly Rhode Island. And we're also in the province of British Columbia in Canada, and soon we'll be in the province of Alberta. And we're just a few weeks away from being expanding our distribution into states like Utah, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, and possibly if, oh, in Indiana. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, it's, there's a lot of a lot of growth happening very quickly. Um, there's a tremendous amount of demand for our beer, uh, particularly across the United States. You know, as you can imagine, there's a lot of people who are celiac or gluten-free that are looking for a really great gluten-free craft beer that uh, they just can't get that in their area. So they're, fingers crossed, hoping that we can get there as fast as we can. So we're trying to be very strategic about our distribution footprint um, and working with partners that, uh, you know, that we uh, share values in and share, vision, you know, share a vision with um, and also know how to, to, to really, uh, you know, present our brand in the, in the, in the best light. Um, and we're also talking about what facility number two could look like, you know, because we're getting to a point where we're uh, kind of reaching the, the capacity limits of what uh, we can do here at our production facility in Seattle. Yeah. Awesome. That's cool. Well, all right. I want to thank you for being on the Low Key Podcast. And uh, I'm going to drink some of your brews. Right on, Matthew. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> cheers. Yeah, cheers. Thanks again for listening to the Low Key Podcast. Now go check out Ghostfish on all their social mediums. Go check them out at their brewery and tap room. But remember to like, follow, and subscribe if you like this podcast. All right, guys, that's in low-key land. Keep it nice. Keep it easy. Keep it low-key.